I'm Jennifer Morrison, and you're listening to The Bookshelf, where I talk with the authors I love about the books I love. You guys are in for a treat today. We are talking to Melanie Finn. She is the author of The Hair, a feminist thriller that follows the story of Rosie, a former art student who finds herself isolated in a rural Vermont cabin with her daughter, and she's grappling with her husband's toxic and very unbalanced presence in their life. This book tackles some really tough subjects. Even when we had this book in our book club, we had some trigger warnings just to make sure that people were taking care of themselves as they dove into deciding to read this book. But Melanie is just spectacular. I had the best time talking to her. I could have talked to her all day long. I can't wait for you guys to be able to hear her perspective on things and be able to get some insights into how she finds this incredible nuance to her writing. There's such an effortlessness to the way that she writes, and I find myself so completely seduced by the way she uses words. I just had a great time talking to her. She is so vibrant, so full of life, and really, truly inspiring. So here it is. Here's Melanie Finn. All right. Well, Melanie Finn, who wrote The Hair, welcome to our bookshelf. Hi, Jen. I'm super excited to be here. Thank you so much for doing this. We really, really appreciate it. Tell me, for someone who hasn't read the book, how would you sum up the book from your perspective? I would describe it as a dark, noir, feminist thriller about a woman who might be labeled a victim, who through her circumstances has been victimized, but through the course of the book, finds a sort of chart a strange course of empowerment for herself. And I would warn readers, it's a dark read, but I hope that the feeling is very positive at the end. Yeah. I agree with that. I mean, I felt like I was really inspired by her journey and the book. So I felt like as much as there was a lot of dark things that she went through, there was always this resilience that was so uplifting in the storytelling. It sounds like that was very intentional. I think the resilience is a curious quality that Rosie, the main character, has. I wonder why some of us seem to have more of it than others. I'm very curious about the source of that resilience because many people go through exactly what Rosie went through, which was emotional and sexual abuse as a child. And then, of course, you know, immediately immediately making poor decisions about her romantic life that has devastating consequences for her. So there is many people who have that same experience, but they don't seem to have that quality of resilience. And I'm curious about that. Do you have yeah. any feelings about that? Jen? No, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting you bring it up just because, you know, as an actor, I've had to face some of those questions at times when you play characters that have had backstories with some of the things that Rosie's been through. What I found about Rosie in the book is that I felt like because she didn't know any different, she didn't have something to compare compare it to, to feel like what was going on with her was as dark and overwhelming as it really was because she didn't have the thing to compare it to, which was also kind of what kept her where she was because she didn't know what to aspire, sort of reach to this other place that maybe she could reach to. But it also is sort of what kept her alive and resilient because she wasn't resentful. She only knew what she knew. Does that make sense? It totally does. And I'm really pleased that you saw that about her. I think most kids who have unhappy childhoods don't have that reference point. So I was talking with a friend the other day his father was a very violent alcoholic and it's Mm. like it just feels like it's normal and then at some point you realize it's not but as you point out I don't think Rosie ever comes to that point where she realizes that what she suffered was extraordinary unique or even wrong but she seems to find herself well she doesn't seem to I know she does yes (laughs) 
Um, you have the inside track on this well, one, I have Melanie. got the inside track. So she finds herself in the natural world by becoming physically strong and engaging with the woods and the mountains around her. She finds herself in that place. And I felt that actually was something that happened to me, having, yes, had an unhappy childhood and made lots of poor decisions about men and then finding really how I understood myself and my strength from being in the natural world. And I love that wow. Rose gets to do that. Wow, that's incredible. Was it a self-imposed in the wilderness or was it like a retreat or how were you able to have that experience? When I lived in LA, I, a young woman in LA, and I'm sure you probably know what that's about. It's tricky. <laughs> it's tricky and it has its own sort of madness. And I rented a trailer out in the Mojave out near um, wow. a tree. And at that time in the 90s, it was still like an undiscovered area. And I started just hiking a lot in that really rugged terrain. And something entered me. It was just mm. an idea wanted better for myself. And I was really able to hold on to that through another decade of being quite mixed up. I didn't really start writing seriously until I was nearly 40. So, no way! Yeah, well, I had written in LA. I had written scripts and stuff, but I didn't take myself seriously until 40. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Isn't it interesting that, well, maybe this is unique to me, but I feel like there might be something universal in it, which is like, it's so easy when you're searching for that stuff to be frustrated that other people aren't taking you seriously, but no one can take you seriously until you take yourself seriously. That's true. I was very lucky that actually when I worked in LA, there was a series called The Redfield Diaries, which is sort of notorious now. It was led by David Duchovny and it was kind of like this erotica thing that was on Showtime with Salman King was the showrunner for that. And what was extraordinary about that experience was that we were writing about sex. It was very nice, like loving sex, sexy sex, not like... Sure, yeah. And it was in Canoga Park, which is weirdly where they make all kinds of sex films. But it was like this family run organization. There was Salman and his two daughters and there was me. And it was this sort of family run enterprise and Zalman was the first person who had ever taken my writing seriously mm. and he always pushed me with these scripts to dig for character to improve my dialogue to do all of these you know to become a writer he was yeah. the person who had faith in me and I would say for every young woman you have to have that one person who's like I completely see what you're capable of and I support you and as you going back to Rosie that is actually what she doesn't have except her neighbor Billy I think yeah so. and Billy what a character when you set out to write this was it Rosie was the character that sort of emerged first for you or was it the sort of thematic ideas that you were exploring because you know as you said it's sort of this feminist thriller but the character is so rich that I just found myself as a reader wondering which came first thematically were you intrigued by this world or was she just so rich that she kind of gave you this world that's always a chicken and egg question for writers for me I generally start with a question a theme mm. that is generally pretty self-faced pretty narcissistic and that was if you have been abused what shadow does that abuse cast over all the decisions that you make in your life and at what point do you find yourself free of that mm. shadow so that was the starting point and Rosie sort of emerged pretty quickly out of that every writer is writing about a version of themselves without writing about themselves it's like an sure. old universe and I think we all tend to start that character at a familiar place but then very quickly that character becomes their own person and so you know Rosie kind of started at this place you know kid who'd had an emotionally drought ridden emotional childhood and had these awful abuse happen yeah um, I did not grow up in Lowell Massachusetts I did not grow up with my sure, sure yeah 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 so then that gets layered onto it but certainly I would say probably the truest part of the book is the insecurity of her being 18 and finding herself in the world completely mm. unprepared 
said, but the decisions that she has to make about her life and how to read people and what they want and what they're offering, I think that's pretty universal regardless of what experience you've had. You stand on that threshold at 18 and you just have no idea what to do or how to move forward effectively. Yep, absolutely. I was a very lucky child. I did not have abuse in my childhood. And yet I did find myself very much relating to Rosie in that place in her life because no matter how your upbringing is or how supported you are, you still kind of reach that point where you get kicked out of the nest and you're looking at the world going like, I don't know if I know how to be a person. Like, where do I start? How do I actually be a person? You know, and school gives you all this structure where you have to do things at certain times and all this stuff. And then all of a sudden get out of school and there's no structure and there's no plan for how to get a job or everything is just so much trial and error and figuring out even how to eat right or rent an apartment or, you know, all these things. We don't set people up in the education program to come out on the other side, knowing how to do any of the things that are going to keep you alive. I think there's another element to that too, which is something I didn't directly address when I was 18 because I didn't even think of it as a question but that is how to be a woman in the world and Mm. what that means are you a sex object there's all these questions and I see my daughters who are just turned 13 Mm. kind of embarking on that journey of how do they see themselves in this world how do they want to embrace that identity of womanhood whatever it is whether they're you know cis or whatever they're going to turn out to be I've got (laughs) no idea because that's where starting and it's sort of exciting as a mother to see that and hope that I might be a little bit more of an advice board for them but I still think it's a solitary journey Um, one of the things I've most been upset about being leveled at Rosie is that oh she's such a victim Mm. and don't we get to write about victims why should every woman that we write about be this powerhouse you know I know what to do I'm solving this murder mystery we have to allow people to get it wrong yeah be human they have to be humans yeah (laughs) you know like not every human when they're put in a bad situation knows what to do most of us don't. I love hearing that. Yeah. I would say, where would we be in fiction if we didn't have, you know, muddled heroines from Madame Bovary onward? People are just trying to figure stuff out. And I think that's an important thing about a book is that it can be an avatar for you to experience your own confusion or reflect on times in your life when maybe you didn't make the best decisions. If we don't allow books to be messy and have messy characters, I'm not sure, like, is the alternative just like Netflix? No, I 100% agree with you. And it's interesting that not many people are talking about that. It's something that in the industry side of it too, comes up all the time. And everyone says like, well, you play so many strong women. I said, well, no, I like to play really whole women. And whole women have moments where they're really strong, but also have moments where they're really vulnerable or broken. That's actually not a gendered thing. It's actually just what happens as a human. You can be really strong one day and a mess the next day. That's just how it goes. I feel like it's such a weird disservice to audiences to act as if women just have to be entirely strong all the time because then that's going to make an audience member feel like they're failing every time they don't feel strong. You have to see all the messy grit to go, oh, right, we all go through this stuff and I'm not alone in this and there is a way to work through this and fiction is a great way to have options to start considering the ways that you could work through those things. Uh, That's absolutely right. One of the problems I have with a lot of fiction and whether it's on books or TV is that, you know, women are allowed to be either strong or crazy, right? 
right? We have the unreliable narrator, which is hugely popular. Yeah. And I've enjoyed those books and those films just as much as everybody right. else. And then there's the sort of the young, messy woman that sort of become a trope too. Where is the mess going? I think that when a character realizes her mess and that she wants to make it better, that's a massive pivotal point for any character to kind of go through that transformation is how do I reshape my own narrative? I think that is the power that great books give us is taking the mess. That's what your resolution is. I've made this huge mess. How do I fix it? Yeah. And the thing that's interesting is, you know, when I first started going to the therapist that I go to now, I for a very long time had a hard time identifying what I was feeling when I was feeling it. I felt a lot and I can tell you exactly what my characters are feeling, but I had a hard time getting to the identification of what I was feeling. And so I would say to her, you know, she'd like, well, how do you feel about whatever? And I'd be like, can you just give me multiple choice? Because <laughs> like when anything is possible, I'm not sure how to identify it. Mm. And it was so sweet because she did. She was like, sure, I'll give you multiple choice. And she would give me like four or five options. And then when I heard it, I knew it was the truth. And I'd go, oh, see, that's the feeling that I'm feeling. And I don't need that anymore. But it's interesting that when you have books to look at, and I'm sure this is why I was in love with reading from such a young age, is that because I couldn't quite tangibly understand my own feelings, I could put myself in these stories and I could start to see these ways of like, oh, I would never thought of walking it out this way. I would never have thought of the pivot being this could be the solve to the, the mess that I accidentally made. And it's so cool that you're so committed to that in your writing. And it's so clear in the hair. It's so, so, so clear. And also just the journey of the different phases of her life that you bring Rosie through. You can feel how she shifts and changes through each different phase and how she kind of discovers a new part of herself and that different people seem to activate different things in her as well, which I think is very rare to see that level of thoughtfulness and interactions in a novel where I could feel that you were very aware that everyone made a different part of her shine when they interacted with her. How do you plot something like that out? Or is that an intuitive thing as you're writing? I think, well, see, I have to stop saying I think, because actually that's a joke that Rosie and Christiane have in the book is that women always say I think. Well, yeah. no, actually, I know. I know. <laughs> I know. A lot of that came from my script writing days in LA, where, mm. as you know, from a script, you cannot have a lot of exposition. Everything has to be shown or explicitly said and every scene needs to move the story forward in some way and bringing that into writing novels has been really useful to me because it's sort of like what is this scene saying and doing mm. and what is this character seeing and doing my publisher fantastic two dollar radio as you know um, I love them <laughs> Eric Obanoff the the publisher said it amazed me that you fit this much into a short space about this woman's life but it never feels hurried yeah and I would say that is something I'm good at is actually yeah writing in a very concise way which comes from writing scripts you don't have a lot of space to get your message across it has to be really clear what's happening even if characters aren't talking to each other you have to understand the tension and the non-verbal communication that's going on mm. in writing a script like I didn't write anything great just wrote Red Shoe Diaries but it was a great foundation yeah that's so cool it usually goes the opposite way where someone is saying that they've learned so much more about script writing because of being a novelist or writing fiction and so it's really cool to hear that it was influenced in the opposite direction in this situation and in a way that was so powerful for the results. Really amazing. I want to go back to Billy though. Where did Billy manifest? Because what a character. She's so enigmatic and yet so clear. It was like I could completely see Billy and her home and the proximity to where Rosie was and like them in the woods. I could see her wardrobe. How did she manifest for you? I love Billy. And of course, there's a bit of a spoiler alert that Billy is a woman, but there's a reason for that and that Billy had actually 
started out as a man when I first started writing. And Billy was based, again, going back to the Mojave. I had a friend called Gary who was just an old desert rat. And, you know, his house was just a shambles. It was very much indoor, outdoor. There was just, you know, cat shit under the bed. It was Mm. really quite disgusting. But Gary just took me as I came, as a friend. Mm. He never questioned the mess that I was in. He just sort of provided a place for me to start. And he had a bunch of horses and we would go out riding for hours and hours in the desert. And when you have, you know, as much as I had Zalman in LA telling me, you can be a writer, you can be a writer. I also had Gary who just said, I embrace you as you are. I Mm. I have nothing of you. And that was important too, I think, to have a friend who didn't want me to be anything in particular. As I was a good looking young woman, didn't want that either. Just Mm. wanted to embrace me as myself. That was an extremely powerful experience. So Gary was the template for Billy and his kindness and the, the sort of way he lived his life also, which was very rudimentary without ambition, just didn't want to be anything other than who he was making saddles in the desert, smoking Marlboros and riding his horses. That was the beginning and end for him. And wow. I love that about Billy. Billy's independence is absolutely authentic. Mm. She doesn't want to play by society's rules either because of her gender or her poverty. That is a self-sufficient ideal. It's unreachable for most of us because most of us probably have more, I guess I would call it ambition, but we need more physical comfort and a certain mm. unable to feed ourselves. Right. As Billy does. I think I was also afraid that if Billy was a man, there would always be that possible sexual tension or that Rosie would always suspect that Billy wanted something more. Or um, even that the audience would yes, project that, that as opposed ex- to, yeah, yeah. The reader would expect it. And so I wanted it to be clear that that wasn't the case. And I also found as I started writing and my neighbor actually said that, I mean, incredibly right, that the book reminded him of Virginia Woolf's Orlando, which is sort of mm. like, I'll take that compliment. Yeah, own that one. (laughs) The the book, in a way, sort of became this showcase of various ways of maybe being a woman in this world. And I think that Billy is one of those ways, is to just completely eschew femininity or what society tells us is feminine. There's something so admirable about Billy's ability to be self-sufficient that I felt envious of as a reader, as a female reader, because I felt like there's so many things that I'm not even sure are unknown biases that I have about being a woman, you know, because you're just raised how you're raised and you keep trying to be more and more aware and kind of work it all out. But you're still raised as a little girl and you still, there's certain things that society puts on you or you don't realize these agreements you've made with yourself of what that means to be a little girl and then a young woman and then a woman in the world. And to read Billy, I was like, man, I had no concept as a young woman that that was even a possibility for a woman. It was so far away from my awareness in the way that I was raised. It just never would have occurred to me. And it sounds so miraculous to think no matter where I am at any moment, I could survive. I could feed myself. I could make a fire. I could figure out shelter. I'm jealous of that in her. I was like, should I go to some like wilderness camp? (laughs) Should I go and figure out how to survive on the land? Because this sounds like what we all should know how to do. What I love most about Billy is the way she's completely sidestepped this vanity or this self-consciousness that we have. And I think, you know, you're an actor and you have to look a certain way and you Mm -hmm. do look a certain way. I mean, you're beautiful. And that adds a level of complexity and expectation of how we enter this world. And I love that Billy has just said, I'm not having any part of that. Genuinely, she's just not interested. It's not that she's 
damaged or she's hideous or she's just completely not interested in putting on that mask and playing that role. It doesn't matter to her. It's got nothing to do with her ability to survive or even be happy. And I love that liberation. I wish I could have it for myself. And I kind of think, well, maybe when I'm 90, I'll just go out and I'll get sunburned and I'll get skin (laughs) cancer and I'll smoke cigarettes and drink whiskey and I just won't care anymore. Yeah, I know. I'm like, do we just have to be little wrinkled old ladies before we don't care? There are huge questions about how we interface with our faces in yeah. this. and aging menopause and going to the idea of menopause. I don't think I could have written this book until I had gone through menopause. It gives you a completely different perspective on your younger self and the expectations that you had of your younger self. And, and also like a kind of a more bird's eye view of, of what society wants you to be as a woman. If that even makes sense, I guess. It like- does. It's so hard to put words to it. I go around and around about with my girlfriends and other creators and it's so strange because the people trying to dig themselves out of all the expectations have only known the world with those expectations placed on them. So how do you ever fully dig an entire gender out of that? Because if you're constantly being fed what culture and society is feeding you, how do you ever totally liberate yourself from it to be able to move past it or to grow past it or see the options of how to grow past it? And so it's this sort of kind of endless conversation about what that means. And I think that's also why Billy was interesting to me because, you know, when I look at all the things that are going on in the world right now, especially what's going on in Iran and how scary it is to see women suffering in the way that they are and imprisoned in a country in the way that they are from the societal expectations. I look at them and I think I want them to all meet Billy. You just think, how do you start a movement of encouraging women to be so self-sufficient that a man couldn't threaten their safety? And that's always what it's come back to, I think, historically for women is like, well, our bodies are smaller and we're not as strong. We don't have as many guns or whatever. I don't pretend to totally understand it, but it's like, there's so many of us there's just as many of us as there are men. How is it possible that it's gotten to this and for so long historically? You know, I think this idea of why we still fight so much for basic rights and autonomy is endlessly confusing to me. And as you do, I'm looking back going, well, why are we going backwards? And I wonder about how many women out there are actually in the boat paddling backwards. Um, Mm. Going back to that idea of the kind of tropes that women in fiction and film are often sort of shoveled into, you know, the strong woman detective or the crazy mother. That does seem to me like we're not able to embrace complexity and see that, you know, weakness may also be acceptable, but may also be a form of strength. And we could talk about this and obviously it gets unpacked by people much more knowledgeable and have PhDs in this kind of thing. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But it's nice. I mean, normal people have to be able to have the conversation too, or we're not going to get anywhere. If we wait for everyone with a PhD to solve it, we're we're not going to get anywhere. (laughs) One of the things I loved about hitting menopause was just being able to say, I just really don't care about these Mm. societal constructs anymore, about being meek and mild or pretty or not offending people or that I need to dress a certain way. Expectations become very different when you're a middle-aged woman. Mm. People are both dismissive of you and as Rosie finds or Rose finds, you are invisible and there's a certain power Mm. that can come with that invisibility. Once you embrace that, particularly because you have spent so much of your life trying to be seen in a certain way, it's sort of like this secret power cloak that you can put on and kind of wander in between the cracks of things. You know, Rose certainly comes to middle age pretty dysfunctional in certain ways, pretty isolated. Mm-hmm. But I think that that last part of the book is really for her to decide how she wants to live the rest of her life, to make that decision that she's going to do it completely on her own terms. 
comes. The symbolism of taking the painting, it made me go back and reread from when she first saw the painting because I was aware that it was significant when it happened, but I was unaware of how significant it was going to be until I got to the end. And so it made me want to re-experience all of that with that knowledge that it was headed there. I can't quite remember how I came back to her getting the painting. I knew that the painting was important, but I think that even as I put her in the car and propelled her off to Bennett's sister, I was unsure of what she was going to do. Mm. And there's one small thing that nobody's picked up on, so I'm just going to mention it. But when she goes to see the painting, she buys a pair of pantyhose to put on her head like a kind of a ski mark. Yes. And I had in my mind that this was like a piss take on the Playboy bunny ears, right? <laughs> So, but nobody's picked up on that. Right, because it goes here and it's still coming off. Yeah. We have to make the movie so that people can see it and then they'll get it. <laughs> right, these like ridiculous floppy ears being the opposite of that ideal of pulchritude and availability that mm. you know, the bunny represented. So that oh, was- Oh, like, I love it. I love it. <laughs> wow. Oh, that's so great. It's such a great image too. You know, because what's interesting is I pictured that and I thought, oh gosh, how crazy that she's going through all this with her face smashed. I was wasn't thinking about the extension of the logistics of the pantyhose. But also the whole idea of pantyhose. Nobody wears pantyhose anymore, right? But like no. I, when people wore pantyhose and it was always this like, why am I wearing these hot, itchy things? Like that are all bulgy and what is the purpose? And I don't even know what was the point of pantyhose to make you look like you had a tan, to hide the fact you hadn't shaved. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I can see wearing wool tights in winter because they yeah. keep your legs in. Yeah. But they point to pantyhose. It's just one of these things that was foisted on women. I think it was a way of this on to make yourself uncomfortable and hot. <laughs> it's so true. I know. I mean, I think ultimately it goes back to like that women had to be covered, which is again, mm. what they're dealing with in Iran in a different way. You know, it was such a scandal to see a woman's ankles at one point, you know, and then skirts got shorter and shorter from there. But I wonder if it was this workaround of, but my skin is covered. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe there's a book out there, a really fascinating book about why why they came about. One of the things I did want to touch on to get your feeling about, one of the things that has come up is the character of Miranda, who's Rosie's daughter. Mm. And it seemed to be that mothers in particular were upset that Miranda wasn't a better daughter and Miranda didn't seem to understand what her mother had done for her and given for her. And I wondered how you felt about that. I found it really powerful because I found it more honest than how most mother-daughter relationships are represented. You know, we tend to sort of aspirationalize these things in fiction and all relationships are complicated even when they're good between a parent and a child and to me it said how much of an incredible mother Rosie was to Miranda because Rosie protected Miranda from all of the things that could have made Miranda understand Rosie if Rosie weren't as exceptional of a strength of a mother she would have put her burdens on her child she would have said well don't you know what your father did and you know don't you know what I've been through and she would have been sort of bringing Miranda into her own damage in a way. And it seems as if Rosie took everything that she learned from being with Billy in the wilderness and everything that she learned to be able to be strong. And she gave her daughter a chance at having a life that was completely driven by agency, her own agency to make decisions and to be able to take care of herself, which meant she was privileged in her ability to take agency and in a way that Rosie never was. But it made them two completely alien beings to each other because of that, because their experiences were completely opposite. So there's no way Miranda could ever fully understand Rosie because Rosie protected her from her damage. And so poor Miranda is just trying to understand her history and she's going through her own version of what Rosie went through. But 
having had the privilege of being taught how to have agency in her life. And so to me, it made total sense. It was heartbreaking and it was painful, but it felt like a total honest portrait of what a child who had a mother who gave her what she gave her might be going through. And then it's also heartbreaking because it's just this proof of like, no matter how great of a parent you are, and no matter how much you sacrifice to give your child a good life, there's still going to be some journey that that child has to go through that is going to create separation at some point. It's why every Disney movie kills a parent. It's like why every fairy tale kills a parent. The psychology behind it is, well, who are you without these people who are telling you who you are? And so there's always this chasm that has to happen. And it's painful. It's terribly, terribly painful on both sides. But it felt so true to me. It felt so absolutely true. And it also felt like a gift to Rosie, in my opinion, because it's part of what liberates her in the end is that she realizes Miranda needs that space. And that in giving Miranda that gift of that space, she's also gaining that gift of I get to go fully discover who I truly am without any of these things that are binding me to a past or to my damage. I thought it was really brave and really heartbreaking, but so moving. Thank you so much for exactly interpreting everything I meant oh, God. in that relationship. <laughs> because it is sort of, I mean, you know, obviously I have a complicated relationship with my mother, I think the way most of us do. And as I become a mother, you know, now my girls are 13, I feel like yeah. now I really am stepping into that role apart from just, you know, being- Keeping them alive. Yeah, kept them alive. Now it's like, wow. And that idea that I don't want them to have any looking back at me, right? They are, as that that Cahill Gibran quote, you're the bow and your children are the arrows. And Mm. I love that Miranda has become this kick-ass woman operating as a man in this man's world without any qualms about it. It doesn't occur to her that she should be playing by anybody's rules other than her own. And I think that that is a great gift. And it's exactly what Rosie wants for her and Rosie you know of course she wants to be recognized as any of us do but it's not a primary motive she doesn't complain to her daughter like you never visit and you never call and she's accepting and yes that idea at the very end that even maternal love is an obligation and Mm. freedom really ultimately is freedom from any obligation even if those are about love yeah Um, and all of us need to reach a point where we're ready to let go of of love just yeah Rosie has a tremendous amount of agency in her own way. She just doesn't always make decisions that are going to help her get out of the situation she's in because she doesn't know how to make better decisions. So she does actively do a lot of things, but it isn't until all of those active things are up until the end are to just stay alive. And she's accepted that as enough. And for her to go and to steal the painting in the end, the symbolism of like, no, I'm going to go take something for my own and I will deal with the repercussions, whatever they are. It's not just take something. Is take something from the rich because there's yeah. <laughs> there's a real like class anger in this book. I mean, one of the reasons that again Rosie Rose gets called a victim, and I'm thinking, is there any recognition of what it's like to not have money, to be poor, that you don't have options, yeah. you have ultimatums. That's what you oh, have. I oh. live, you know, I live in a community that is one of the poorest communities in Vermont, and there are people here who are struggling to put boots on their kids and coats on their kids and feed their kids how are you supposed to self-actualize when you're trying to figure out how you're going to keep the house warm how you're going to fill your grocery cart with food and not get to the checkout counter and be declared
intertwined. So for Rosie to find herself against this background of driving poverty was a challenge for me as a writer to make that feel authentic and not grand, but to feel real. Yeah. And there was, I just wanted to give the wealthy people in her life the finger. (laughs) Somebody said, oh, you know, you can never steal a painting like that and get away with it. And I was like, that's not even the point. That's not the point. (laughs) They find these paintings, a Hockney shows up and a Rembrandt shows up there. I mean, these paintings absolutely do disappear. And who cares? For all Rose cares, she could chuck that painting in the sea. It's the idea of saying, I see the oppression. I see how it works. I see what you did. I mean, there's Hobie, who she goes to as a young woman and admits to him that she's pregnant, mistakenly thinking that he might be a good guy who could genuinely help her. And he sort of gives us the money to go and get an abortion, which is a huge amount of money to her. And to her, that $400 is the divergence of her life. If she had had an abortion, her life would have gone one way. And if she hadn't, it went the other way. Sure. But she mistakes Hobie's donation to her as some kind of generosity. But it's not. You know, it's basically like trickle-down economics. It's like, I have lots and lots of money. Here, let me sprinkle a little bit down on you. It's utterly meaningless. It Mm. won't help you in any meaning way it will just help you get to the next day but this is kind of where we are as a society we think that rich people deserve to be unbelievably and insanely rich and that poor people are somehow poor because they're not savvy enough or they don't work hard enough or any of these myths that surround poverty in this country and the same is around wealthy people oh they're rich because they deserve it and they worked hard well actually no yeah (laughs) do they deserve to be worth 450 billion dollars while not paying their workers properly? No, I mean, this is bullshit. Yeah. And so both Rosie and Billy, for me, lie at the heart of that social. Yeah. yeah, and it's so poetic in the way that you accomplish that because it could be so heavy-handed and it's not. You feel the heartbeat of it all the way through and you feel the tug of a new awareness even as you're reading it. Again, I've been lucky I was never in a poverty-stricken situation and I felt like I learned a lot. I felt like I learned so much about just thinking through what someone is going through on a day-to-day basis when they're not necessarily born into a home where you do know the heat's always going to be on and you do know you're always going to have food and it's such an incredible privilege and it should be possible for everyone in a country like this and it's exactly what you're talking about of like the imbalance of someone being worth 450 billion dollars not paying their workers a living wage there's we've got oh sorry snow geese flying over that's what's being yelled out oh, i can't hear it oh, snow geese um canada geese flying over oh got it got it right now so there's this great excitement outside just i have to give you roaming commentary i love it in the background why <laughs> having said could everyone be quiet <laughs> Yeah, so it remains for you, Jen, to try and carve out the focus from the gig, the like serious, loud calliope that is going on in the background. For Rosie, she never has that. I think her life is very quiet and very focused once she gets rid of Bennett. Well, just to touch on Bennett really quickly before we have to wrap up, he also was a fascinating character to me because I felt like you were just as generous with him in terms of his wholeness as you were with the women. I didn't feel like he was carved out to just be like a villain for a villain's sake. He was not just a two-dimensional bad man. He was a very complex, complicated human being who we may not know as much about him as we know about Rosie, but you could feel the texture 
picture of his wholeness and his brokenness, I felt, in the book. And it made it so much richer to read it with him being painted in that way. And it also made his death so much more meaningful because the lines that he crosses in the end, especially with Billy, are just so dark and so unforgivable that you've made this completely complex living, breathing person that we have a chance to care about. And yet he's made these transgressions in the end that finally pin him in villainy that cannot be escaped, as opposed to always being that way from the beginning. I think there's an inevitability. He was a tricky character to write because I did want him to be that whole character. And a a friend of mine who's a wonderful reader and a wonderful novelist, a man, Mm. he just was furious at the Bennett character. He didn't see any Mm. of the subtlety that you've seen. And I asked him to go back and reappraise Bennett because in the beginning, Bennett, he's just wanting to be a certain kind of man that society expects him to be, you know, heroic, interesting, successful. Bennett is as much a victim of society's expectations, gender expectations as Rosie is. And he's just unable to sustain it and becomes more mired in the kind of hagiography, the self-hagiography. And then he can't escape it. He eventually goes to prison because he just kept telling lies that got bigger and bigger and sunk into those lies in a way that I felt, even though I knew he was destroying Rosie and uncaring of her, he was also a desperate character. Yeah. And had moments of genuinely wanting to be heroic and brave and fine. And then realizing that basically he was just doing a bunch of drugs in the motel room and thinking it okay to basically give up part of his daughter to a pedophile, which is appalling. But this is how these things happen. People enter this cage of denial about what's actually going on and who they are. And they make these horrendous, I don't even want to call them decisions there. Like, what is the word when you just completely surrender? Abdicate, abdication. Mm, Yeah. So I did feel for Bennett how much he wanted to find that high ground and how it just slipped further and further and further away from him. So again, thank you for saying that, Jen. Yeah, I mean, there are just things that are breathtakingly horrible that happen, but you also can see a whole person and you feel how broken he is and desperate, as you put it, throughout. And it makes you realize that's how villains are created in the real world. No one's born a villain. There's a whole complex web of things that have come at that person and things they've experienced and wiring that they have to be seen a certain way in the world or whatever that make up the ingredients to push them into that kind of villainy or push them into the kind of denial that could make someone abdicate themselves in the way that Bennett does when the bad things are happening. Those are the lines that fascinate me as a writer is why do good people do bad things? Living in a very small community like this, you know, reading a local paper every day. Mm. There are people I know who get caught up in really bad things and do really Mm. bad things. And you're like, yeah, but they gave me money for last year's raffle. I think that that's in a sense, the beauty of living in a small community is that you're forced to see the wholeness of your neighbors and your uh, other people of your community. You can't just say, oh, well, he's a bad egg or, you know, she's a drug. The connections are so deeply rooted and you have to see the whole it's yeah Yeah. it's a thing that multiple things can be true at once and we like to think that only one thing can be true at once but there can be many truths that live at the same time and someone can give to your raffle and care about the community and also be a drug dealer you know and (laughs) those three things can all be true at the same time and we forget that you know I say oftentimes the the characters that I think are most impacted by that on screen are like when you have someone playing like a serial killer or a cult leader in order for someone to be a cult leader they 
have to have multiple things be true at once. They have to be charismatic. They have to be appealing and they have to be speaking enough truth to pull people in. But then they also have to have the capacity to speak incredible lies that they are selling as the truth in order to self-serve whatever it is that they want to tell. But all those things are true at once. So that's how you get a whole community of people going, yeah, but he did these good things for me. I think it's like, well, that's true. I think it's also true that having bumped into a couple of pathological lies, those lies feel like truth. Those people have lost any sense of navigating between fact and fiction. And they say something and it's so sort of soggy and flimsy that it could be one thing or it could be the other I think that they are completely lost in what is truth or what is fiction in their own yeah. headspace that it's so it's in a sense they're no longer lying they're just speaking some kind of weird wow. weird echo chamber so I honestly could talk to you for days I'm not even just all day or many hours I wish we could do this weekly I do have to wrap up do you have anything coming out are you working on something should we be on the lookout for something new I am actually working on another book yeah, I don't know it's sort of like and I guess it has another feminist element to it, but it's really about this talking about lies and liars. Mm. It's about the stories we tell ourselves to make sense of the world around us, mm. but how those stories become problematic because maybe they're not true. And we make decisions based on those stories. If it's not a true story, you're only going to make bad decisions. And it's nothing to do with necessarily being fantasists or pathological liars. I think we all kind of create this version of the Yeah, world. it's the stories we tell ourselves to get through yeah. the day or make sense of our lives or, so, wow, but I'm excited. It's been tricky school, summer to find the time, but I yeah. think that would be a good time. So hopefully at the end of next year, that will be out. And it's got a creepy ghost story element. Well, if you ever want an early reader. I will have you in mind. I will have you in mind because you have proved what a discerning reader that you are by being so like just on the money. As a writer, I have to say when people come and they've absolutely seen the truth of your book and what you were trying to achieve, when someone gets it, it's really powerful and it means so much. So thank you. Jen. Oh, I'm so happy. I mean, I don't know. I'm just reading. And so all I know is the way I perceive it. So to also know that it was what was intended. It feels good too. It's like, oh good, I got it. <laughs> I got what she wanted. So, well, thank you so much, Melanie. I hope we get to do this again sometime and we're a huge fans. So if there's any way that I can, or if the company can support you or A3C Reads can support you, we are fans for life. Oh, that's so fantastic. Thank you, Jen. And sorry for the, the life noise in the background. <laughs> no worries. It was a great sound design. Great. <laughs> thank you. Thanks so much, Jen. All right. Have a great day. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Bookshelf with Jennifer Morrison. Bookshelf is produced by Gerardo Salasco and Amanda D'Souza. Intro and outro by Aaron Guidry.